today on Ag News Daily. Oftentimes you can access uh, different markets than you wouldn't have been able to because of that increased quality. And so the return on investment is definitely there. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Delaney Howell. Happy trick-or-treat night or beggar's night as a lot of towns celebrate. Mike, will you be doing any trick-or-treating tonight? No, I won't. But Delaney, beggar's night is pretty much just an Iowa thing. Oh, really? Yes. So for listeners outside the state of Iowa, Iowa towns don't do trick-or-treating on Halloween. Most Iowa towns Which do I've it either. Which I always thought is so strange. Yes. Well, it was started by a woman at the Des Moines Register, like back in the 40s, because mm. kids were going out on Halloween and they were, you know, pranking people and egging houses and just being, you know, ruffians, I suppose. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then they decided they wanted to get the little kids out ahead of the uh, troublemakers. Mm-hmm. So they started doing Becker's Night and it stuck around in Iowa. But, yeah, people outside the state are like, what are you talking about? trick-or-treating is on Halloween. Well, no, it's not. It's beggar's night. It's the, yeah. So, yeah. So, but for listeners, Iowa children in a lot of communities will be out trick-or-treating tonight. Yes. So, Delaney, you live in town. Are you Mm -hmm. expecting trick-or-treaters? Well, I live in an apartment, so I don't think we get trick-or-treaters. Okay. Yeah. Well, that just means you can go, and I'm looking forward. My favorite day is Thursday. (laughs) <laughs> when you can go get all the candy half price. Yeah. Half price <laughs> butterfingers, half I am, price uh, Reese's. Surprised by that for some reason. Half price candy corn, the greatest treat oh, yeah. of the Halloween I like, season. I like pumpkins better. Yeah, I do too. The pumpkins are, are much better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now I kinda wanna go buy a bag too. Thanks for go that. Go for it. You're a grown up, <laughs> Delaney. You can just I go know. do it. I know, that's true. Well actually, okay. So, <laughs> Seriously, I cracked up when I read this story today. It says, it's uh, on Quartz website. The title is, quote, the CDC has released guidelines for dressing up your pet chicken on Halloween. Oh, good. Good. I'm glad our tax dollars are going to support this. What are their guidelines, Delaney? Oh, Let's get this God. news out to the people. It, well, the article is kind of funny because it's like kind of making fun of the CDC for even bothering with this. Um, because they say, fear not, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention is not in the business of telling Americans they can't dress up their poultry. So uh, apparently last week they received a flurry of news articles and emails regarding whether pet chickens could safely dress up in Halloween costumes, which then led them to issue a press release that said it did not advise against dressing up chickens. Hmm. Um, and so the agency has not issued advice either way. They urge safe handling of chickens regardless of the holiday. Uh, but they said, however, if you do decide to dress up your pet chicken, they suggest you wash the costumes after they're worn. Um, wash your hands after touching the costumes and make sure the chickens can breathe and walk normally while wearing the costumes. All good advice. uh, Yeah. And then at the end of this article, it says, while giving its guidance, the CDC did not suggest any fun costume ideas for chickens. Hmm. You know, you know how I like to dress up my chicken, Delaney? Um, I like mine fried. I like mine with either ranch or barbecue sauce. (laughs) Those are the dressings I like. 
When I read that title this morning, I was like, oh my gosh, you've got to be kidding me right now. Oh boy. Yeah. Let's, hey, why don't you tweet that at President Trump and say, hey, Mr. President, <laughs> if we want to save some money here at the government, let's just can all the people that work on this. Because <laughs> that's a waste. Well, actually, speaking of President Trump, so uh, AgriPulse got to interview him, and I ended up watching their short little TV segment that they did a one-on-one with him with. And I actually thought it was a pretty good interview, and uh, it was funny because he said something along the lines of, you know, if I weren't president or doing what I'm doing, I think I'd be a farmer. They love to get up in the morning and do what they do. That's true. He is an early riser. Mm-hmm. And farmers do indeed enjoy to do what they do. Yeah. So mm. I it was a really good interview, though. Okay. Any any news in there besides uh, Trump just saying that he would potentially be a farmer? <laughs> uh, no, not really. But we do have some news today coming from D.C. Mike, I don't know if you've had time to see this, but it sounds like we are for sure going to get a second round of payments so basically we're going to get the second tranche of the trade aid the first tranche is worth yeah well so the first tranche was 6.3 billion roughly and secretary purdue told reporters just yesterday that he's expecting the second tranche to be the same amount so that we would use that full 12 billion dollars allocated but we don't know in what way it's going to be broken down per commodity there is still right. time for USDA to say, okay, beans are going to get, you know, now we're going to give them a dollar ninety four, and mm-hmm. corn's going to get two cents right. on fifty percent of production. You know, blah blah blah. So it we don't have all of the like, info yet, but it no. sounds like it's going to come out before Christmas. Yeah, he said um, that he originally had wanted to get it out by October, but the office of what is it, the OMB office, Office of Management and Budget, told him to hold back. Um, huh. and it, so the way it sounds to me is that it's going to be this, I don't know this for sure, but it rumors are circulating that it's going to be about the same rates as what it is right now. Okay. All right. Well, so growers, you'll finally be getting actually, wasn't it a buck 82 on soybeans? A buck 65. Oh, it was? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, either way, that is going to be hefty. Uh, you're right, because, yeah, you broke it down and it was 82 and a half cents per bushel. Yep. Right, right, right. So there we go. Growers, you're going to actually get a, a buck 65 on all your soybeans produced this year. Speaking of soybeans being produced this year, Delaney Harvest Progress mm-hmm. is ripping right along. 72% of uh, soybeans are harvested. That was up 19% in just a week. Wow. And, uh, but we're still running behind the five-year average. Typically, mm-hmm. we're at 81% of harvest, and right now we're only at 72%. Um, basically, Iowa is still running behind. Kansas, Arkansas, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, Wisconsin, and the Dakotas are all running behind, and we're still continuing to see concerns with quality. Uh, we've also got an update on corn harvest. came out yesterday afternoon. The harvest finished the week at 63% complete. Farmers harvested 14% of the corn crop last week and uh, basically brought us right up to the five-year average of 63%. So it's uh, we're making progress. We continue to see Iowa, Nebraska, and the Dakotas below the five-year average, but that was as of Sunday afternoon. We have had really decent weather across those places from mm-hmm. Sunday through at least today and looks like maybe through Thursday. 
I bet we will see Iowa, Nebraska, and the Dakotas be caught up by next Monday on their corn harvest. Yeah, I think we're supposed to have fairly nice weather here over the next week or so. So, yeah, I would expect to see that. Yes, indeed. So that's the update there. Delaney, what other news should we be talking about today? Well, I've got an update for livestock producers. Acting EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler will be in Kansas City today to sign a proposed rule which will exempt livestock operations from having to report air emissions to state and local authorities. We've talked about it before on the podcast. It's that CERCLA or the Comprehensive Mm -hmm. Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act. This is definitely a good move. It sounds like um, just last month, 10 environmental groups sued the EPA for an earlier attempt to shield livestock operations from reporting under the requirements. Um, But I think that this makes sense. I mean, we had that, gosh, it was almost a year ago, or maybe it was almost a year ago now that we had that lady on and uh, couldn't really explain how to do it. I don't understand how producers would figure out how to do it. Not that producers are unintelligent people, but that was just a lot of hoops to yeah. jump through, and it didn't make any sense. The application right. the, didn't make any sense in reality. Yeah. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, there's no real way to address air emissions coming from right. livestock in confinement. There's rough guidelines that scientists have looked up, but if they actually tried to implement this program – you know, you can be guaranteed that national pork producers, that national mm-hmm. cattle producers, that all of these groups would be filing lawsuits challenging the validity of the findings of these so-called guidelines. So, yeah, let's just sidestep the whole deal. The emissions coming from livestock are minuscule when it's, you know, it's just the poop. You know, it's not. Yeah, I don't know. The whole thing was stupid. This is going to be yeah. a positive move if it actually gets done, which it sounds like. Secretary Today. going to get it done. EPA yeah. administrator. It's not a oh, pretty deal. Right, yep. right, right. Sorry, yep. Wheeler. Yes. Sorry, Mr. Wheeler. <laughs> I'm sure you're tuned in as well to the Agnes Daily mm-hmm. Podcast. Absolutely. Well, as long as we're talking about government announcements, we had an announcement today that U.S. consumer confidence has risen to an 18-year high. Delaney, that's almost before you were born. No, it's not. <laughs> it is... Um, Basically, folks are feeling confident. We're starting to see the labor market continue to tighten. We're seeing wages begin to climb. We're seeing um, not necessarily wages, but other compensation. I was uh, following somebody on Twitter who said their best friend's company is now providing pet insurance as part of their benefits package. Why do you need pet insurance? I I don't know. I know that I do not have pet insurance on Mr. And maybe uh, Mr. that, that was an insurance you could have. So, like, if your animal gets sick and needs, like, a surgery or a doctor vet visit. I suppose. I didn't get into that much detail, but that's one of those things that employers are now throwing into the package to try and sweeten it and pull over workers. So the labor market is strong. Wages mm-hmm. are climbing. People are spending more money. And they believe that we are going to see strong economic growth through at least early 2019. However, there's a caveat, Mm -hmm. two caveats, I should say. The first is the stock market. Uh, We talked with Brian Split yesterday about this pullback we've seen, giving back a lot of the third quarter's gains. And it remains to be seen how it's going to play out. But the stock market dropping is certainly something to keep an eye on that can erode consumer confidence. 
The other one is we're seeing a weakening housing market as interest rates rise. We're heading into the winter, which is typically when house prices uh, begin to fall and we see houses just stick on the market a little bit longer. If those two things continue to accelerate, we could lose that consumer confidence. And the reason I'm excited about consumer confidence, Delaney, why do you think I'm excited? Because people eat more beef. Beef, pork, chicken, they just tend to eat more expensive meals. And so growers or at least processors can, can make a little bit more margin selling to richer people who are confident in the economy. Absolutely. Mike, I have a question for you. I know that you pay attention a lot to like restaurant stats, like the number of people that go out to eat or the age groups that go out to eat, <laughs> et cetera. Does the consumer yeah. confidence index really have that much direct correlation on restaurant figures? Because, okay, here's my quick thought process for you. People my age, well, and your age included, because you're a millennial too, we like the experience. We like to go out to eat blah, blah, blah. So does this consumer price or the consumer confidence index, does that really have a direct correlation with restaurants and eating out? Yes. Well, yes and no. So we we tend to see restaurants, spending in restaurants and visits to restaurants accelerate before we see consumer confidence begin to climb. Oh, okay. Because people don't necessarily think, hey, I'm feeling rich. I'm confident in the economy, so I'm going to go out to eat. <laughs> mm-hmm. They think, hey, I got a couple extra bucks. I don't feel like making dinner. We're going to go out to eat. But they start to do that when that confidence is growing. But then they begin to report their confidence later on. And that varies depending on the the economy and the state that we're in. But like we started to see restaurant figures really kick up about 18 months ago. And so now we're getting the strong consumer confidence reports that were kind of hinted at by people going out to restaurants 18 months ago. So it's sort of a leading indicator. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah. Well, hey, actually, since we're talking restaurants, we're talking eating meat. You know, we had a conversation with Edgar Ramirez, the uh, farmer Mm -hmm. from Argentina here this last week, or two weeks ago, I suppose, at the World Food Prize. And he was talking about the economic crisis down in Argentina. Well, Reuters, has uh, reporters down in South America, and they sent a guy to Buenos Aires, and they looked at how the economic crisis is changing the Argentinian diet. And what they found is that in the last month, uh, actually in the month of September, the percentage amount of meat eaten, well, let me see if I can get this right, meat consumption (laughs) fell to an annual average of 108 pounds which is down 17% over the previous month. So it was a huge drop. Argentinians are like Americans. They eat a ton of meat, particularly Mm -hmm. beef. And as prices have accelerated, as inflation has taken off and the peso has just completely fallen apart, um, they're not able to go out and eat as much. The reason I think this matters is because we are probably going to see the Argentinian rancher looking to export more beef if his countrymen aren't consuming it, which could have an impact on uh, U.S. beef markets. Absolutely. Absolutely could. Yeah. So what the, what they found was that uh, Argentinians are eating less beef. They're switching from mm-hmm. uh, roast beef and so forth to chicken and really just cutting meat out of diets completely because they just can't afford it. Yeah. I, I mean, that makes sense. Right. Right. But it's huge changes. Argentinians, mm-hmm. there's a neat quote in here. They say um, eating beef is central 
to uh, here. Here's it's a butcher. He says, quote, the people are carnivores. Argentines have always for their whole lives have eaten meat. It is part of the culture. And now they're forced to give it up. I mean, I don't think it's quite as much of a staple as pork is in the Chinese diet, but definitely I think when I think Argentina, I think steak or right. beef. Right. Absolutely. And you know what, Delaney? It just makes me sad to hear people aren't able to eat beef. Mm. Because everybody should be able to eat beef. <laughs> it's so delicious. It is. I agree. Argentinians, my heart goes out to you. Mm. Well, we have some Argentinian listeners, so uh, I'm sure they're going to appreciate your sentiment. I know. I'm I'm with you. I'm not going to give up beef in solidarity, but I'll eat extra beef. <laughs> and you there can you pretend go. I'm eating it for you. Well, speaking of beef, Mike, should we jump over and look at the meat markets and grains today? Yes, I have one other piece of news. This is something that I've been trying to keep an eye on. It's a convoluted issue, but it could have an impact on grain prices as we get into 2020. And mm -hmm. this is the change in the rules governing the kind of fuel ships can use. Basically, all cargo ships, whether they're transporting containers or soybeans, burn a very, very cheap kind of fuel called bunker fuel that's high in sulfur. And the International Maritime Organization has said that in 2020, they are going to have to stop using that high sulfur fuel, go to a much lower sulfur fuel that's going to be more expensive. And there's not a lot of confidence that we even have enough of this fuel to keep all of these ships going. That could have a huge impact if it ends up being the worst case scenario, which we're still a ways away from from knowing. So is it a for sure done deal? Yes. Yeah, it's a done deal that we're going to this uh, uh, lower sulfur fuel. Mm -hmm. What isn't a done deal is how much of it is really available to the marketplace. And that's what uh, I guess I suppose a lot of smart people are going to be putting their heads together over for the next year, trying to get everything figured out. Mm. Okay. But yeah, we would definitely see a hit in basis if uh, fuel prices yeah. spike. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, but that leads us, of course, right into the markets, Delaney Howell. And our markets are brought to us by our great friends at the Zaner Group listeners. Remember, it's never too late to put a marketing plan in place. Do it today. Give our friends at Zaner a call. They'll walk you through it. They'll help you put one in place that can manage your marketing risk. So you can reach them at 312-277-0050 or visit them on the web at zaner.com. And we've got red on the screen today pretty much all down the board, starting with the corn uh, December corn contract down two cents at 364 and three quarters. The March also down two at 377 and a quarter. In soybeans, the November was off five and a half cents at 833 and a half, with January down five and a quarter to close at 847 even. In Chicago wheat, December contract down seven and a half cents at 499 and three quarters. The March down eight and a half to finish at 517 and a half. Looking over at the livestock markets, we've got weakness in the cattle complex today. October live cattle down 40 cents at 113.90. The December down 45 to finish at 116.80. In feeder cattle, the November contract was down at dollar 72 and a half. Closed the day at 152.1750. With January also off a dollar 72 and a half to finish at 148.10. Small bit of strength here in lean hogs. The December contract was up 15 cents, closed at $59 even. February 
up a nickel to close at 66.95. And of course, we've got to take a look at the dairy market in class three milk. The October contract, of course, expiring today, uh, was up was up a penny at 15.54. November was down 10 cents to close at 14.77. Now we're going to have a great conversation, a very interesting and enlightening conversation. So folks, stay tuned for our hashtag Tech Tuesday. Well, folks, for today's hashtag Tech Tuesday, we are talking to Sarah Hovinga. She is a microbiologist with the Biologicals Unit of Bayer in Sacramento, California. Sarah, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. No problem. I'm so glad to be here. So. Well, let's just get the base out. We've talked, I think, microbials on the program before for Tech Tuesday, but when you think of microbials in agriculture, what does that mean to you? Microbials in agriculture means that you're using beneficial bacteria for crop protection purposes, for example, against crop fungal diseases, bacterial diseases, or insect pests, or also as crop enhancement products for yield or nutrition or quality crop enhancement products sounds like something you'd see on late night tv that's right yeah, yeah it's, it's like the red bull for for crops right. yeah, yeah exactly yeah. yeah. organic like red bull. Right. i'm just teasing so <laughs> that was going to be my question would microbials be considered organic would organic farmers use them most often in their operations there are many microbial products that are definitely registered for organic use it just depends on some okay. of the production processes that go into it. For example, inert ingredients that might be used in formulations mm. could potentially not be on the organic list. So you could have something that's microbial based, but because of the formulation, it's not technically organic, but it is uh, based on a natural microbe, for example. It feels like microbials kind of have just recently maybe come to the forefront of agricultural usage. Is that the case that you've seen as well? Well, I think maybe the what I see is that the communication and the understanding in terms of how to actually apply some of these microbial products is coming into the more of the general space now than was before. Biological control has been around for a really long time in the terms original. of just exactly yeah. the original control, right? Yeah. And so, so the concept is not necessarily new. Um, the So before working for Bayer, Bayer actually acquired the company that I worked okay. for. It was a private company that was started in 1995. And so we've been doing the type of research that we've been doing since that time, for example, having commercial products as early as 2001. Okay. But I would say it's on a new wave in terms of how to really integrate these. Because when we're talking about biological crop protection products being used in programs, we're not only looking to the organic industry for example. We're not looking to completely replace chemicals. We're looking at how to integrate some of these crop protection products with standard conventional products on top of plant breeding technologies, mm -hmm. looking at how we can integrate them into digital farming strategies. And so it's one of the tool in the toolbox that a grower, one of our customers, would have. Now, I've got to ask you this question because I've had people throw it to me and I don't have a good answer for it because I'm not a scientist by any stretch of anybody's imagination. Microbial products, so we're adding them to the seed, could be a seed treatment, could be a spray-on foliar or in-the-soil type application. Correct. The question I get is, our soil is made up of billions and billions and billions and trillions and zillions of microbes. How can the addition of a few on a seed make that much of a difference? So the answer really lies in the, the strain that you're using, for example. So... 
an analogy we like to use is of dogs, right? A person's best friend, right? So you have dogs that are all the same same genus and species. So like humans, we're Homo sapien, right? But then we're each individuals. And dogs, you have like a husky, you have a chihuahua. Which one would you rather have pull your sleigh? Right, the right? husky every time. Exactly. And yeah. so one of our products, for example, is based on a strain, Bacillus subtilis. But the specific number of the isolate is important because that's that husky rather than the chihuahua. So everything else that's in the, because you're absolutely right, in a handful of soil, you have more microbes than people on planet Earth, for wow. example. Okay. And so you're absolutely right that we're already introducing a product into a huge background of bacteria that are already there. But it's the specific properties of that one strain that we've identified characteristics figured out how to manufacture into a product and apply to a crop. So, okay, I'm trying to, I'm trying to clarify all of this in my head. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of producers are too. So to figure out what strain would work best for my operation, do I look at my soil type? Do I look at the geographic location I'm in? How do I figure out which one works best for my operation? So... That question is something that I think is really interesting and part of where biologicals are going in general. For example, we've seen that there can be biological strains that are more specialized versus more generalized. Mm -hmm. And so we'll have products that work, for example, across various different, different types of environments, and those can be applied pretty much anywhere to any type of a crop. I'm thinking like mycorrhizal fungi is one that I've heard about a lot. Mm -hmm. Would that be a microbial? It, yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And so, but it, it, in a case like that, you really need to have, I mean, depending on the strain oh, again, okay. so depending so on the strain, back. it comes back to the strain. Depending on that, you would have a certain type of condition that you're looking for and selecting for. Like there are certain types of strains that are very specific to, to corn or certain strains that are specific. The old example in the book that a lot of us learn in biology class, for example, is rhizobium species interacting with soy, mm -hmm. so legumes. And you, you learn in you know high school biology about the nodules that are formed on the roots, and those nodules help to fix nitrogen. That sort of interaction is very specific to that mm -hmm. system. And so that would be a case where you really need to know that specificity. But again, even though there might be a baseline of a rhizobium living in the soil, you might be able to find a strain that does that better. Huh. And so, yeah. Interesting. So it's all about identifying the better pro the better bug. Do you call the bugs? What do you call them? microbials? <laughs> we, is such a long word. It depends. I I can go with bugs, so that's totally fine. Okay. I can go with microbes. I go with bacteria. bacteria. Yeah, beneficial it's bacteria. All biologicals. Yeah, I guess it depends on the context that you're okay. using it in. So when you but so far, you're good. Okay, you're, good. You sound like you you're, you're yeah, on I'm top kind of kind of an expert. You spent <laughs> yeah, seven years in college, yeah. Sarah. You sound like it. Finally graduated from community <laughs> college. It was a real real feather in my parents' cap. Um, when you, when you think of where we've come in the past five years, both with computer technology, the ability to isolate and then identify different biomes. When you think about where we can go in the future, what has you excited? Oh my gosh, so I have a huge smile on my face because like that's a huge area of interest for me. Mm -hmm. So 
Think about how far we are, for example, in the medical world at knowing someone's genetics, knowing how, you know, if you are taking this sort of a drug, you better not take this one. We know a lot about drug interactions. We know about, you know, yogurt is good for your gut because of the good bacteria that right. are colonizing your gut. And, and guess what? It actually talks to your brain. And so there's just so much interesting information going on with microbial interactions and biological systems that we really need to harness also in the agricultural space. And speaking of some of the advancements that have come in technology, for example, think of all the big data that's being collected yes. in agricultural fields. So soil type, fertilizer inputs, what crop it is, what variety it is, all of those different things have the potential to be tailored so that you are using the specific strain for a specific purpose to get a specific phenomenon at the end and so Bespoke I spoke crop protection exactly it's like it's like a medicinal program for crops and, huh. and just imagine putting all of the pieces that we have together I mean and that's no small feat by any yeah. means I don't mean to imply that but it's just and knowing the genetics of the strain you already know the genetics of the crop you know your system and you have all of this data to understand the causation of all of these different parameters interacting think of how much power that yields so, Sarah, all of this stuff is very high level. And maybe producers sitting at home are like, okay, I'm tuning in and out. What, Some what of this. Yeah, what can I do today? What can producers at home be thinking about when it comes to using microbials on their operations? Or what are some takeaways that they should be maybe acting on? Absolutely. So I think some of the benefits of biological crop protection products are that they do offer efficacy, so on diseases and pests, like I was talking about before and figuring out how to work them into their programs in terms of what they actually need. For example, if residue management is an issue at the end of one of the crop seasons, that could be a potential place for biologicals mm. because a lot of them are exempt from some of the, the residue tolerances. A resistance management could be a place where a grower could look to a product to incorporate into a program to be able to manage resistance. So there are products out there that, that already exist for that. More on the crop uh, efficiency side, let's say, mm -hmm. looking to where some of these products, you know, it, what are you looking for? Are you looking for post-harvest shelf life? Are you looking for increased sugar content in your grapes? You know, and, and so I think just really understanding kind of what it is that you're looking for, what's lacking in your crop system, what kinds of sustainability needs do you have as a company that you want to meet? And um, there are companies out there with biological products that are looking to partner with you. And now I think that's the next question. When growers have these kind of thoughts or are questions, they often turn to their agronomists. Do you find that most agronomists are pretty well up to date on the field of microbials, or is there still a learning curve that is going on? There's a learning curve even for us. Mm. I mean, I think because, like we were talking about, it is a new industry, and we're learning new things every day. Um, and that takes time to communicate the practicality of like the really cool science to, you know, how you're actually going to apply it in the field. And so I think with, with some of the products that we have, for example, we're, we're there definitely in terms of being able to recommend them and use them. It's also a very crowded space. There's a lot mm -hmm. of information out there. And so I could see how an agronomist or how a grower could feel overwhelmed with all of the different solutions. You know, which one is the best? And I think for us, science is really at the base of our 
our recommendations for why we know our products do mm -hmm. what they do and also safety. And so I think with any of these companies, any of these products that you're looking to, do they know how the product is working? Do they explain it to you in a way that makes sense? You know, what does the scientific literature say out there about the products? What are other growers saying about when they use these products? And so I think really reaching out to the community and understanding how these different products are being used and what knowledge and what practices fit with what you're already doing would be a good way to go. Sarah, the last question I kind of have is, to summarize all of this, so when we look at this year, 2019 in particular, a lot of farmers are going to have to tighten their belts. Commodity prices aren't doing as well as a lot of them would like. Do microbials provide the payoff? If I invest in that for my operation, am I going to see immediate economic economic benefit? Or is that something that's maybe five, ten years down the road that I should be looking at for my operation? Again, I think that's something that you look to in terms of, I definitely think it can be used now mm -hmm. for a return on investment. So let me just put that out there right now. But it depends on what you're looking for. So let's say that because of residue restrictions, you just can't access a certain market potentially in Europe. Right. Um, so a biological could immediately open up that pathway to you. So I think it could be a potential solution right now, depending on needs, to open up that, that market for you and potentially give a return on investment, you know, as soon as the crop from that program can be, can be uh, achieved. Another thing would be increasing crop quality, crop nutrients. Oftentimes you can access uh, different markets than you wouldn't have been able to because of that increased quality. And so the return on investment is definitely there, and we've seen growers all across the world be able to reap those benefits. And I have just one final question before we let you go. <laughs> you're, you're clearly passionate about this stuff. No. Tell me. How did you get that? I, I'm, just, I'm very intuitive. <laughs> I can intuit. <laughs> Sir, I read your aura. Um, when you are at a cocktail party yes. and you're talking about work, what's the coolest bug you've discovered? What's the coolest thing you found in your field? Oh, my gosh. So I'm I'm biased, and I, I, yeah. I of course. This is I'm, a very subjective question. Yeah, what's your favorite? Yeah, well, I, I support one of our products that's called Serenade, for example, okay. and it's based on the strain, 713. It's the husky I've been talking about. Okay. And that strain is just amazing. And so you can look it up in the literature, and there's lots of independent research that's been done on it. It's a species of, of bacillus, which is a really hardy microorganism, very well known in the biological control and it, it's really cool you plate it out on a petri plate so those you know plates mm -hmm. that scientists have in the laboratory and it looks like a volcano oh. and yeah it's just what a really do why would I put it in my field why would I want volcanoes in my field well those volcanoes translate to the bacteria growing and creating a colony and so what it's actually doing for example in soil uses is colonizing the root of the plant triggering that plant to grow and produce better quality, better yielding crops, while at the same time also protecting against diseases. And so it's, it's, it's an amazing husky of a microbe. I like that. I love that analogy. Well, Sarah, <laughs> thank you so much for shedding some light and making microbials an interesting topic to discuss on the podcast today. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me here. All right. Well, definitely an interesting conversation. Glad we got to catch Sarah there at the World Food Prize, Mike. Yes. I wish I were smarter. I wish I understood, <laughs> you know, biology and microbiology and little well, I bugs. Think, in the 
I think she did a great job of breaking it down and making it understandable and digestible for people like you and me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's always one of my favorite questions to ask what their cocktail party story is. You know, what's the crazy (laughs) stuff you tell people? What's the fun thing that you you learned at your job? But uh, listeners, if you want to learn what other people's fun stories are, we have collected over 19 months now, I believe, worth Mm -hmm. of fun stories related to agriculture, an episode every day. You can listen to them all at the Ag News Daily website. Just go to agnewsdaily.com. You can uh, always share your insights, thoughts, comments, concerns, critiques. We want to hear all of it on social media, Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Ag News Daily. And with that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. (laughs) 